Good morning, church. My name is Frankie Concepcion, uh, and you have to pronounce it just like that. Otherwise, I won't accept it. Just kidding. Uh, but I have had the joy of being a member here at Covenant Life for the last several years now. And I'm so thankful for the discipleship that has been given to me throughout the years through this church. And specifically, I am grateful that the elders of this church would train me in preaching God's word and have allowed me the opportunity to preach before you all now for the third time here today. My hope is that my sermon today would be just as impactful, if not more, than the last times that I have preached. And so let's start off here with a quick recap of what we have gone through uh, in the book of Habakkuk so far. Earlier in chapter 1, Habakkuk laments to God about the sin and injustices that are being perpetrated by Israel. Now, I just want to quickly mention here that I am purposely using the word lament in my sermon today. Uh, if you look at some of your Bibles, uh, they might categorize these sections as complaints. But I think Habakkuk's discourse with God is no mere complaint. If you remember from our sermon series of Lamentations, uh, lament is a type of prayer that expresses great sorrow and pain towards God. Lament turn towards God when sorrow tempts you to run from him. And I think this, is, and I think this more accurately depicts what Habakkuk is going through in these verses. And so in the beginning verses of chapter 1, he laments to God, asking, Why are you sitting idly by and allowing these evils to continue? Oh, how long would you let this go on for? And soon after this lament, God answers Habakkuk in a way that will completely catch him off guard. God essentially tells him, let me remind you that I do not tolerate wrong, even if it is at the hands of my own people. In fact, you wait and see, for I will execute justice, but it will be on my terms. So what did God plan to do? Well, if you remember, God said that he would use the Chaldeans a people who are far from models of godliness, a bitter and hasty nation, verse 6 says, a people who are birthed from violence, verse 9. I mean, these are some evil, wicked people, and God is using them as ministers of justice? Well, now it's time for Habakkuk to respond. And spoiler alert, he is not pleased to hear this whatsoever. My question for us all this morning is, can we relate? Can you remember a time when the Lord has allowed something that left you so feeling so vexed by God? Have you ever questioned the Lord, why God, why me? Have you looked at your circumstances and cried whether out loud or in the crevices of your heart, this is not fair? If you had your way, would you do things differently? And here's the important question. 
would the outcome still be the same? I think most, if not all of us, have been in situations like these. And if you have not been and you just have not lived long enough to experience them yet. And so my hope for this sermon this morning is to show us how we should respond when God uses means of justice and sanctification that brings us to such great despair and anguish. And since this is such an enormous part of our lives, that we need this great, enormous God to help us today. And so let's pray. God, speak to the lowly this morning. Those of us who are suffering, who are weary and heavy laden, use the preaching of your word to lift eyes, fill hearts, and enlighten minds. Help us, O Lord, to see discomfort and misfortune in our lives with just a small glimpse of how you and all your wisdom do. God, may we walk away, may we not walk away unchanged or without challenge. Edify us, O God, by your grace and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. By the grace of God, I hope to give a verse-by-verse description of the content of Habakkuk's response uh, in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2. The goal of this is to get a better understanding of the depths of Habakkuk's lament. And somewhere towards the end, I will give five application points in light of these verses for us to consider. Amen? All right, let's look how Habakkuk starts off his second lament, because I think the first part of verse 12 are the most important words of Habakkuk to consider in this discourse. Hear what he says. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. This is something that we should take great note of. Because before Habakkuk complains about the way in which God would do justice against Israel, he first acknowledges the eternality of God and his position with his everlasting father. To know that God is eternal is a source of great comfort for the believer. Why? Because if God is eternal, then he has no beginning or end. His existence stretches backwards without limits and forward without limits. And if he is the great I am that he told Moses to declare to the enslaved Israelites, then he is the beings of beings. And not only is he at present, but he is what he has been and he will be what he shall be. And it is with this great constancy of his faithfulness that God will fulfill his promises. Habakkuk knows that God is eternal and has already seen the injustices of Israel and already knows the injustices that the Chaldeans will commit, yet God will allow them to happen anyways. This is baffling to Habakkuk. And so at this very moment in his great grief, he finds himself questioning whether God is truly eternal. 
Are you not from everlasting? But Habakkuk doesn't stop here. Because in the same verses, he also attempts to position, he also attests to the position, to his position, sorry, with this everlasting God when he says, Oh Lord, my God, my Holy One. When Habakkuk uses the words, my God, this is covenantal language. I cannot call something mine unless I have purchased it or made some type of agreement for it. In the same way, I can call Gina my wife because we, out of the love that we have for one another, have agreed to come, come into this marriage covenant together. Now I belong to her and she to me. The people of Israel have entered into a covenant with God, and so he is now their God, and they are now his people. This is the type of language that speaks to the intimacy of God and his people. And so if God is our God, then we also have him as our strength, our shield, our rock, our helper, our present help in time of need, our salvation. What God has to offer, we get the great privilege of benefiting from because he has covenanted with us. Habakkuk affirms this very personal relationship in the use of this very possessive pronoun, my. Church, can you honestly say this with Habakkuk this morning? Consider this, is God really your God? Or is he someone who is just up there in heaven without any real personal relationship with you? The answer to this question has very real, current, and eternal consequences for us. With confidence, can you call God yours? Now, why is this all important for Habakkuk? Because of the problem that exists in his mind. Look at the second half of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them, the Chaldeans, as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. See, though though they had these great privileges because of their personal covenant with God, They also had a great responsibility to live in such a way that honored that covenant or judgment would have to come before them. This is not a result of the Lord just lashing out in his anger. This is a result of God being faithful to what he has said he will do. Look at Genesis uh, chapter 18. This is God speaking about Abraham. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that so that so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham had the promise of the Lord, but it was contingent on doing righteousness and justice. This is not to say that it wasn't faith that granted Abraham this promise, as as Hebrews tells us. 
But by doing righteousness and justice, Abraham was so practically the great faith that he had put in God. Now, let's look at the language that God used when he established the eternal covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. He says this, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Does this, now, does this sound familiar to us? Because this is precisely what is going to happen now as a result of the sins of Israel. Israel and their forefathers were always called to live in such a way that displayed their great faith in God. And there was always consequences for them not living out in such a manner. Habakkuk would have likely known these ramifications for their iniquity. And so he had desired some sort, of, some sort of corrective or retributive justice for Israel. But the utter devastation at the hands of the Chaldeans, that seemed far too much for him. At the very least, this was certainly not a position that Israel was used to being in. You see, Israel had grown so accustomed to having God use them as a source of rebuke for other nations. Oh, the convincing blows that would conquer even the most powerful of armies. And yet, how unusually perplexing for Habakkuk when the other nations are now used as a rebuke against Israel. There was a lasting covenant, yes, but having failed to seek righteousness and do justice, Israel was met with a measure of the covenant that called for the reproach of their sins. In the following verses, Habakkuk then moves into further questioning of God. He does this in two ways. First, he deals with the source of the problem, verse 13. Then he points to two factors that intensify the problem in verses 14 through 17. Read with me here in verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly sit? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? Habakkuk's problem is not that God is doing justice against Israel. If you remember last week, it was Habakkuk that sought God to do something about the pervasive evils that were characterizing Israel. No, rather, Habakkuk's problem was about God using such a vile nation as the Chaldeans. And how does Habakkuk come to such conclusions? And why would he question the validity of God's decree to use the Chaldeans in such a way? Well, I think he answers that in the first half of verse 13. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Habakkuk is once again appealing to the nature of God. God in his omniscience sees all things, both good and evil, the conscious and the unconscious, what is felt and what is done. But the Bible is very clear on this. 
God does not take pleasure in the sins of men, nor does he make provisions for any kind of evil that men may scheme. Psalm 5.5 tells us, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God's holiness cannot abide iniquity. To look on evil contradicts his very essence. And it is this very reality that further increases the puzzlement of Habakkuk. Why, God? Why would you allow such evil? Do you not hate sin? Or am I wrong to think this? And what was even more baffling to the prophet, how he saw it, was that the evil being perpetrated on Israel was from a nation that was far more ungodly than they. I mean, here, how Habakkuk increases the magnitude of the problem that he is presenting before God in verses 14 through 17. You, God, make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, he's now shifted to the Chaldeans here, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them up He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings in his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Here the prophet is bolstering his argument by pointing to the pattern of atrocities committed by the Chaldeans. And did you catch this? He is blaming God for these horrors when he says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Habakkuk here is making the connection to the creation account. After God created men, Genesis said that he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In God's designed order, mankind was to rule over the creation. But now... Now, Habakkuk is making the parallel that God has somehow made mankind like the fish and the crawling things, yet without ruler to protect or guide them. They are all susceptible to be brought low under the oppressions of the Chaldeans. Oh, to what debasement has Israel experienced to be brought to such a place that they are regarded as carelessly as the fish that we eat and catch or the flies that pester which are met with the swift swat of our hands or the bugs that are stomped with the tread of our shoes. What it must have been like for Israel to be so highly esteemed by God to now being brought low to such a place by the same God who elevated them. Verse 15 gives even more description to the, oppressor, to the oppression of the Chaldeans. When he speaks about them hooking their captives and dragging them in net, this wasn't figurative. 
Historians note that the Chaldeans took on the traditions of the Assyrians by literally driving hooks through the sensitive lower lips of their captives just to fix them into submission in single-file lines. And they would also literally ensnare their captives in human-sized nets to prevent them from getting away. These were real things that happened to real people, and Habakkuk was terrified that it would now happen to them. And yet, perhaps, the most repulsive part of all of this was that the Chaldeans enjoyed it. They took delight in inflicting such demeaning and barbaric punishment. It was like a sport to them. Habakkuk is saying, is this really the way in which the Lord would deal with his people? I know you must discipline us, but I do not understand why it is at the hands of such people as these. One commentator put it this way. Must the sting of cruel mockery be added to the horrors of an already oppressive judgment? And to further add to the perplexity of Habakkuk, he points out in verse 16 that the Chaldeans have made idols of the torture devices that they used because of the luxuries that it has provided to them. They have made idols of the temporal things and are clearly worshiping the creation over the creator. And since God is a jealous God, perhaps this was even a ploy for Habakkuk to provoke God to do something about this intolerable idolatry. They lived in luxury and ate the finest foods all at the expense of other people. Will this merciless killing of nations continue forever? Habakkuk laments to God in verse 17. He has just poured his heart out to God in deep and honest lament. He knew Israel needed some type of reproving, but to come at such a cost, he did not understand. And so he dared to question God the Almighty. And now must wait for his response. Chapter 2, verse 1 says that Habakkuk will wait at his watch post on the tower and look to see how the Lord will reply. This gives the imagery of a man who is eagerly and expectantly waiting for something to happen. And in this case, it was for the respond of the Lord that we would see next week. There is so much that we could take from this passage. I want to highlight several takeaways for us today. First, I want us to heed the way in which Habakkuk is wrestling with God. I mean, he goes on to question God, whether God is truly who he said he is. Questioning things like his justice and omniscience and his holiness. This is actually nothing new for the saints of old. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as many refer to him as, in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 18, goes on to question God. If God is like a deceptive brook that in reality does not even have water to supply. 
David in Psalm 44, 23, questions whether God is asleep as he suffers and tells him to wake up. These men know that God was in any of these things, but in their anguish, this is how they felt towards the Lord. And let me be clear. What Habakkuk is doing here is not whining to God. This isn't about a man whining to God, but it is about a believer who is sincerely inquiring about the suffering around him. We could stand to learn so much from Habakkuk here. In great despair, there needs to be great honesty towards God. As a Christian, I tend to struggle here. How dare I doubt God in these ways? But this passage, this passage has been so helpful in reshaping my prayers of lament to God. Because yes, God is sovereign ruler, but he is also gracious father. And as sons and daughters who have been grafted into his kingdom, we ought to have the confidence to have such genuine childlike approach to our heavenly father. Church, as 1 Peter 5, 7 invites us to do, cast all your worries and cares on the Lord. Why? Because of the biggest motivating factor that any man could ever have. God cares for us. And he deeply, deeply cares about our suffering. This should speak volumes to us here in 2020 where people have lost jobs, homes, and even loved ones. Fight the lie that tempts us to think that God has somehow ceased to care about us. Whenever you find yourself questioning whether God has somehow forgotten you, remember his character and his promises. He is the same yesterday as he is today, as he will be in the future and throughout all of eternity. And if he cares for us yesterday, or if he cared for us yesterday, then he will care for us today, and he will care for us tomorrow. And this is precisely, and it is precisely because of this that we can have such a confidence like Habakkuk. To draw near to God with all our pain and with all our guilt and with all our grief. Come to God with your brokenness and sorrows because as Psalm 51, 17 tells us, this is the posture in which the Lord will never reject. Secondly, do not miss the seriousness of our sins. Having just gone through a series of the book of James, we are aware that whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. What this means is that even our smallest sins makes us woefully guilty before a holy and perfect God. Let me put it another way. When we engage in pornography, we are giving our support to hubs for sex slaves and child sex exploitation. When we are willing to lie and participate in unethical practices for the sake of higher earnings, then we are making idols of the temporal things. When we fail to preach the gospel to unbelievers because it would impede on our comforts, then we are essentially saying that we matter more than them. 
when we disregard the cries of injustice that our black and brown brothers and sisters are telling us that they experience, we give way for these injustices to continue. When we harbor anger in our hearts towards another, then we have committed murder in the sight of God. When we lust after persons who are not our spouse, and it is like committing adultery to God. Oh, how we have been so promiscuous, how we have been murderers, keepers of injustice, how we have disregarded the lives, the lives of others and have been idolaters and enslavers. In many ways, we have been just as barbaric as the Chaldeans. We are trapped between what we would like to be and what we are. But we cannot be what we would like to be until we first confront what we are now. This leads me to my next point. That is, if God exists, why are there such evils and suffering in this world? Let me start by first pointing out that God does not commit evil. He created a perfect world, but it was man who brought sin into it, not God. And so to ask the question, why is there such evil in this world, that we must first ask ourselves, why is there such evil in us? And to answer that question, we must go back to the beginning. For God made the world and everything in it as perfect and good. It was Adam and Eve that chose to sin against God. And as we have learned throughout this sermon, there are consequences for sin. And it was this disobedience that brought suffering, evils, decay into this world. And because God is a just God, he must punish what is wrong. Listen to what Paul says here in Acts chapter 13, verse 40. And 41, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perished. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. You know what this is? This is Paul quoting Habakkuk 1.5. But where Habakkuk was telling of the destruction of Israel by the hands of the Chaldeans, Paul is telling of the destruction coming to those who are rejecting Jesus. But he's not leave it here. Because even before speaking about the destruction that was to come, he first speaks about the hope. The Chaldeans are evil. Israel is wicked. And we are no different. But Jesus, whom God raised up whom God has raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. We can try all we want to live good and perfect lives, but we would fail every single time. For the believer and unbeliever, God has made a way so that we will not be judged by what we do or not do, but by the measure of our faith. Trust this. 
Let this grip your lives, and you will find that submission to God, a good and holy God, is far more freeing than surrendering to your sins. Fourthly, God is wise in his punishment and justice and knows exactly what we need. I asked a question earlier. If you had your way when it came to your hardship, would you do things differently? Would the outcome still be the same? If we had the choice between the path of least resistance or the path that would cause pain and sorrow, we would always choose the path of least resistance. But let me remind us what Romans 5 tells us. Suffering, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. If it were not for suffering, then our walks would lack persistence. Our characters would be of ill repute, and our hope would be fleeting like the very earth we stand on. Can you see how suffering builds us? I realize that we cannot know why we are being sanctified or how we are being sanctified through our individual circumstances. Because to know every detail of that, then we would have to be God. But as John Piper put it, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may only be aware of three of them. Church, do you believe that God's plan is bigger than just one moment? It is bigger than a situation or just one person. It is precisely in times of great sorrow when when things seem questionable and so out of line of God's character and design that great faith is needed to push us forward. When we cannot see God's hand at work, we can at least trust his heart to have our best interest in mind. Lastly, look to what is to come. Hebrews 11.1 1 explains to us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let your misfortunes turn you to look at the hope that you have in Christ. Let it spur you to plant your feet even deeper into the vast glories that are awaiting you. Learn from the black Christians, slaves who through their brutal enslavements, mournfully look to the hope that is to come, knowing that where they were going would be far better, far better than where they were. For the Christian, there will come a day where suffering will be no more. There will be no more miscarriages and lost loved ones because death will be something of the distant past. Our deepest wounds will be healed Darkest scars will fade. Anxiety will become assurance. Sorrow will become joy. The restless will find rest at his side. And journeymen will finally be home. 
No more grudges, animosity, or divisions. Relationships destroyed by the brushstrokes of pride will be restored to its rightful image. Our insecurities will crumble at the sight of our anchor. Injustices will collide with a just God. And things will assuredly be made right. Temptations and struggles would vanish before our eyes. And we will be able to finally worship our God far from any impediments to deter. Oh, that even the crudest schemes of man and the hardest blows of this world would seem petty in contrast to this glory. And this life but a vapor in comparison to this eternity. What a sweet hope this is. I am anxious like a father waiting for his unborn child because every inch of suffering and depth of pain has been preparation for this splendor. The bride will finally be united with her bridegroom and we will get our greatest reward and that is God. All creation is fixed on this future glory. Our trials are meaningless without it and no trials are overbearing with it. Hope has never longed for anything quite like this. This is the type of truth that makes a man say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And oh, what gain it is for the Christian. I want to conclude this sermon with a prayer from the Valley of Vision that I think captures this sermon in a far more eloquent way than I ever can. And so agree with me. Pray with me here. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought us to the Valley of Vision where we live in the depths, but see you in the heights. Hemmed in the mountains of sin, behold your glory. Let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess it all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let us find your light in our darkness. Your life in our death your joy in our sorrow, your grace in our sins, your riches in our poverty, your glory in our valley. Amen.